0: You're coming on a great Sunday. You always come on a great Sunday, but this one's a really good one because we are wrapping up chapter two of the book of Ephesians. We've been in 14 weeks in this journey. Uh, We've kind of walked this book at a little bit of a slower pace than we've done some other things. We're intentionally kind of moving in these slow chunks and looking at them at length and in depth and then kind of expanding on them in terms of how they should affect our lives. Because Ephesians was a book written to a church, this sort of crown jewel of all of the churches that Paul had established. is this way of saying, look, I spent two and a half years with you. I've invested my whole heart and my life. You are the picture of the church. Now go and be it. And there's a deep call to a reality of of good theology and deep unity and identity that is a part of Ephesians that the church is called to embody. And so we've been kind of exploring it through that lens. And chapter two is interesting because the whole first 10 verses are really spent around the idea of leveling everybody's heart. Paul basically establishes this ground level of saying, listen, all of us, no matter where you're from or what your background or story of life is, we are all dead in our sin." Every single one of us, the Jews aren't any better than the Gentiles, the guys aren't any better than the girls, this part of life is not better than that, or wherever you're from, every single one of us is fully dead in our sin, and we are due the penalty of that sin, which is God's full wrath. And then he goes on to explain that in that dead state, God did the unthinkable, that he sent his son Jesus to die to give us full life, that if we believe in him as our Savior, we are resurrected literally from death to life, and we become one. So no matter where you're from, that if you're saved by grace, you are on the same playing field as the person next to you. Now for us, that may not sound like this groundswell of things because we've grown up with that idea in the church, but if you were a Jew, this is a huge deal because being separated from the rest of the world was what you were called to the majority of the Old Testament. God separated the Jewish people out to establish them as his people so that they wouldn't mix with the rest of the world, but that is all part of God's beautiful redemptive picture of history. He was setting up up creation for Christ. And so now, right through Christ, we have all become one. And so Paul spins that first portion reminding us that we have nothing outside of Christ. And anything that we do have is because of Jesus. The second part, as we've seen in two weeks in a row, is that he says, now that we know this, we have to understand who we are together that we are part of this bigger family. There are no circumcised or uncircumcised. There are no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. We are one in this body of Christ. And he begins to hammer home this idea of unity. And this morning, we're going to see him take this final step in chapter 2 and drive it home with this other really amazing metaphor that, like most things in Scripture, is fully metaphor and fully literal at the exact same time. And he's going to call us to an understanding that we are this living temple of God And that we are called together to be the representation of Christ to the world called the church. And Christ loves the church. So that's kind of where we're going to be. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip to the last few verses in chapter 2, 19 through 22. And we're going to walk through some of these big pieces together. And then we're going to kind of figure out where that leads us and how that should change how we uh, we think and live. So let's take a moment. Let's pray together and then we'll dive into chapter 2. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather here as the people of God. It is a, uh, a an incredible privilege. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to worship in freedom. We recognize that that's not the joy and privilege that everybody has around the world, that we have missionaries that we love and support and missionaries that we don't even know that are gathered around this globe, Lord, in places where worship is not something they get to do. And yet we get to wake up and decide if we want to come, if we feel it or not. The truth is the church across the world doesn't have this privilege, and so we recognize and we pray for them this morning. We pray for the church that's on our street, next door to us, the one that's up in Edmond, the one that's down in Norman, Lord, the church across our country, the church across the globe, Lord. We pray that you would unite believers in Christ Jesus. As we're going to learn today and as we've seen these past few weeks, we are part of one incredible family, the body of Christ, one incredible household, one beautiful living temple. Uh, Lord, that when we confess Christ as our Savior, we are united together in brothers and sisters. We are not separated. We have done our best as humans to destroy what you have created, but God, the body of Christ stands. And so, Lord, let us rejoice with the whole of the body. Lord, we ask that you would teach us this morning through your word something simple or powerful or convicting or whatever it is that you need to do and work in our own individual hearts. Take a moment, just as you sit here this morning, and just ask the Lord to teach you. Not sure what that looks like or, or what that might mean to you, but just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and just whisper those things to the Lord. As we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone beside you, around you. We take this very seriously. We want to be people that pray for the people around us, to care about the spiritual movement and growth of those people, even if you're here for the first time or you don't know anybody, just pray for somebody. You don't have to know their name. God knows exactly who they are. In fact, he tells us he knows every single hair on their head. So Lord, you know who we speak of. Just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them, that he would teach them, that whatever they're wrestling with this morning, he would address. Pray for someone around you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would take your word and that you would teach our hearts. Lord, we recognize that having an encounter with your word is having an encounter with you. This is the very breath of God. Lord, it is a theoponestos. It is your word spoken to us. It is not something we take lightly. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come all the way to the end of Ephesians chapter 2, and we have landed on the last few verses of this chapter, as I mentioned, where Paul has really kind of set up the, the people that are reading or listening to this letter being read, saying, listen... This is who you were in Christ, dead and gone. This is who you are now in Christ, right? Saved and redeemed, and also one, one identity, one church, one people. And he's saying, let me explain it to you in a little more prolific way in case you haven't got it thus far. And that's kind of what he's doing in chapter 2, 19 through 22. So he says this, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So basically, he takes this concept and he turns one last metaphor over to make sure they're fully getting it. And he uses the word consequently, or your version may say so then. It's this kind of conjoining term that says, in light of everything that I've said, this is what this comes to, right? He says, so, so consequently, you are no longer foreign or, or aliens. You are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So the first thing he says is this. You, we, are all part of God's household. And that language is really important, right? Because that household language is family language. That we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. That we are in the truest sense of the word as followers of Christ and we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We are part of a bigger family. We are part of a family that has a father who leaves an inheritance. A father who has a legacy. We are brothers and sisters with all those that profess faith in Christ. It is a household. Hold. Now, the New Testament talks about this all the time. It addresses God the Father all the time. In fact, Jesus actually in the Lord's Prayer says, right, how do we pray? We pray to God our Father, not my Father, our Father who art in heaven, meaning that all those that profess faith, right, are part of this big family in which God is the Father. We are part of his household, we all have these seats at this table, if you will, of this much bigger household. And we learn a few things about that household. First thing we learn is that we are no longer foreigners or aliens. Now, all of chapter 2, the first part, was meant to set us up being this idea that in our sin, we are foreigners and aliens in God's house. We don't have a place there that in our sin we are so fully due the nature of God's wrath that we are not welcome allowed or part of the household of God because God is real holy and perfect and mighty and we in our sinful nature are aliens and foreigners meaning we don't actually have a home we don't have a place there we do not have a a seat at that table if you will we were foreigners and aliens however through Christ that status of being a foreigner and alien has been obliterated Though we no longer are kept outside the gate or outside the boundary or whatever kind of metaphor you want to use in your head, we have been welcomed into the family and we have a seat at the table. We are no longer foreigners or aliens. Not such a big deal for the Jews because they've always felt like they were God's people and they were. Big deal for the Gentiles who have always been kept out. And last week, we spent a lot of time talking about this, how the temple actually had a wall that surrounded the outer court from the inner court called the Sorek that kept the Gentiles out, had signs on it that says, you cannot cross by penalty of death. So the Gentiles, their whole life, have been kept out of the household. And that is, even for those Gentiles that went through the process of saying, I may believe that God is real, they were still kept out until fully converted to Judaism, which happened very seldomly. But now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is saying, you, here, the guy from Ephesus or down the road that's a Gentile that's Greek that has no Jewish connection at all, you profess faith in Christ, and you're Jewish, and we're born Jewish, and you profess faith in Christ, you guys get to sit next to each other and worship the same God. In fact, you have the same father, same family, no longer foreigner, no longer aliens, right? And he takes it one step farther, and he says, you are now fellow citizens together which means you've been welcomed into this family with the same dues and rights as everybody else. If you are a citizen or a part of the household, you get the same responsibilities and privileges that every single person that household gets. What that means is two things. One, it means that there is nobody in the household of God that has a place that is better or more sacred than anyone else. No pastor, no pope, no elder, no podcaster, no Christian celebrity, no book writer, no worship leader, right? No one... And the household of God has a place that is higher than anyone else, period, end of story. We are all part of the family, all do the same inheritance. We are fellow citizens. So we need to make sure that we don't idolize people that the church is decided that wants to elevate as if they are somehow more redeemed, more sacred, more holy. The truth is they're not. We ascribe them value, right, as a society that probably they're not due, and it's actually a very dangerous thing. It's dangerous for you, and it's really dangerous for them. Because when we ascribe value and celebrity status to people inside the kingdom of God, we set them up for disastrous failure because they begin to believe that they somehow have more or better or are more or are better than the rest of the household, that their voice is stronger. Now, the truth is God uses people with different gifts in different ways. They may reach thousands of people. That may be amazing and great book writer, all those things, those are great gifts, but it doesn't give them a more prominent seat at the table. We don't listen more prominent to them because they carry a title of pope or pastor or whatever. We are all fellow citizens, right? All fellow citizens, which means we're all going to make huge mistakes. The second thing that means is that in the truest sense of the word, you are no better than anyone else either. That means that no one in the household of God is beneath you. No one, even that person that you sit next to on Sunday that makes you literally insane because all they want to do is monopolize your time. That person, I know you're trying to think out who that is. That person is not beneath you. The drug addict that professes faith in Christ but is still laying in the gutter is not beneath you. The homeless guy on the corner that says, yeah, I believe that God is real and I trust in Jesus. Say he has not believed. No one is beneath you in the kingdom of God. And, and the believer actually takes that one step farther. Not only does that equate to the idea that no one in this household is beneath me, but if these are all God's people and they're all redeemable, then no one is beneath me. Paul makes this very clear that essentially there is no place, right? And Jesus says it too, the first shall become last, and the last shall become first. Our goal as fellow citizens is to recognize that no one, no one, no one in the kingdom of God or that has been made in the image of God, which is all of creation, is below me. I don't care where they're from, what their background is, what their skin color is, what ethnicity, what country, what place, what they do, what their behavior is, no one. We are fellow citizens in the household of God and we take that farther to say because everyone is redeemable and made in God's image, I am better than no one. The truth is, is that most of us, in fact, let me, I'll say it this way, all of us, and we categorize people in these kind of things really oftentimes. We, we categorize people in their layers of sin, right? So we, we see the sin that's super visible and we tend to think, well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a drug dealer, all those kind of things. That's a really bad person. And true, that is a very bad person. But the reality is, is that every single one of us, given the right circumstance or the right decision, is capable of the one sin you think you would never do, Right? I promise you, you're capable of murder in the right situation. I promise you, you're capable of adultery in the right situation. I promise you, you're capable of theft in all the right situations. Think about the situations that could be there family starving, this coming up. You come on someone attempting to do these horrible things. You are capable in your humanness of the most grievous things that you can't imagine. We're better than no one. We all have to need, have to have, and desperately need Jesus. This is a household. Households are hard. Family is hard, right? I mean, think about it, right? Family is hard. We know this to be true. It's difficult. It's hard to love that well in family. But family is joined together with something remarkable. They are joined together, right, by this idea of common purpose and deep blood. And we are joined together by the deep blood of Christ, so, listen to this. We are all members of God's household, right? We know that. He takes it this next step where he says this, and because of that, fellow citizens, right? No longer foreigners, no longer aliens, members of God's household, we are built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Jesus as the chief cornerstone, we are a holy temple. Joined together to be a holy temple. So think about this. If the household of God is this family thing, right, Paul says it's also the place where God dwells. The household of God is the temple of God. And this is really important to understand because here's what you've got to track with. You've got to understand a little bit of redemptive history here. So let me give you a quick little snapshot. In the Old Testament, God had specific dwelling places, Right? When he came to Moses and leading the people out of Israel, God dwelled among the people in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the mobile temple, if you will. It was the movable place in which God's presence dwelled, and it moved with the people around the desert. Right? God was manifested through the ark. His presence was in the ark. The ark was kept in the tabernacle. When it wasn't going out before the people, each day, each camp, they'd build a, a tabernacle again, had very specific instructions, and God's presence dwelled right in the middle of the people, And there was a certain set of regulations on who could go in there, when they could go in there, and all those things. A lot of the Old Testament is dedicated to that portion of God's dwelling place. Well, later on, that kind of temporary dwelling place was replaced with a more permanent dwelling place, which was the temple. So the temple became the more permanent dwelling place of God in which we have all the regulation for the Holy of Holies and all the places and things at the temple, both of them, right? Both Herod's temple and Solomon's temple, they were the dwelling place of God. So, throughout the Old Testament, God dwells amongst his people in these locations, right? Because God is fully holy, and people are still fully sinful. And so, therefore, there had to be a place where God was where people wouldn't. And there were a whole bunch of regulations and rules about how you could approach holy God. Much of the Old Testament is dedicated to this idea, understanding it. But then something happens, right? Jesus comes. And what has Jesus declared? He's declared Emmanuel, right? which means what? God with us. So at the moment Christ comes, he becomes the incarnation, the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He becomes Emmanuel, the presence of God. For those years that Jesus walked the earth, he was God dwelling amongst the people. He was God. He was no longer confined to the temple. He was in the person of Christ, and he dwelled among the people. God even tells us "You will be called God with us. So God using the perfect vessel, sinless vessel of Jesus, dwelled among the people. And then Christ was crucified and he was resurrected. And we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what are we told about the Holy Spirit? We're told that the Holy Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16, takes up residence in the life of the believer. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and his spirit lives in you. Meaning that when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God's spirit fills the individual believer and we become the dwelling place, the temple of God. So we've gone from this place where God is living in the tabernacle or the temple to the embodiment of Christ to the life of the individual believer. So that now God dwells in the temple in the individual heart of the individual believer. But he takes it one step farther and he says, not only that, But these individual believers come together as living stones. And they are building a foundation for a holy temple that is made up of living stones upon which is built on the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. And this living temple made up of living stones that are people, that are you, that are me, that are people that are part of the household of God, make up a temple in which God dwells because he is in all of us. And that's the church. The church becomes the dwelling place of God's spirit because it is made up of the living stones of the believer, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ is the cornerstone. Do you see this picture of incredible redemptive history? But this is what we learned about this living temple, right? We learned a couple of things about it. First, we learned that it's built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, So this new living temple uh, is built on a foundation that includes and encompasses the entirety of redemptive history, both Old and New Testament. The prophets, the word of God spoken to the people, and the apostles, right? The acts and words of God spoken and demonstrated to the people. God is basically moving through all of those people and things to lay a foundation for what will be the church, meaning the whole of redemptive history points us to Jesus that points us to the church manifested Christ's presence in the world. What that tells us is this, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are equally part of God's great redemptive story. If you go ever go to a church that tells you that the Old Testament is outdated or antiquated or not part of God's story or not worth as much, politely get up and leave. Just leave. If they ask you why, I say, just trying to avoid a little heresy. Real nicely, you know, no big deal, no need to throw anything, just trying to save myself the trouble. The whole of God's redemptive story Right, is built into this idea of household. The prophets hold equal place as the apostles. So all of it points to Jesus. But we also learn that not only that is happening, but there's also another key piece to this thing. Not just the words of the apostles or the New Testament or the Old Testament, but there's another piece, and that's Jesus himself. Listen to what he says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So, the church, right, this new holy living temple made up of living stones is built upon the foundational word of God, the prophets and the apostles, with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Now, most of us don't build things, really. We assemble things, they've been sent to us with pre drilled holes, tiny little screws. We are good assemblers, we're not good builders. But back in the day, in biblical times, when you build something, especially something of any size or substance, a giant temple, a building, a something, you utilized an idea of a cornerstone. A cornerstone was the most carefully crafted stone in the entire building. It was laid and articulated to be perfect. Its angles were perfect. And everything else in the building was built upon the angles and movements of that cornerstone. If the cornerstone was not correct, the building was going to be structurally unsound. And so the cornerstone becomes the place that everything else is anchored to. And if it's not set right or if it's removed, the whole building has the ability to collapse. That's how important a cornerstone is. In fact, a lot of buildings to this day, you will still see the cornerstone marked with a plaque. First stone laid. If you go down to any of these giant cities or buildings, you'll see a cornerstone laid. And oftentimes they have a dedication plaque on it because it is a vital part of that structure. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. You see what Paul's getting at? He's going, listen, it's not just what we want to do. We're built on the Word of God of which Christ is the chief cornerstone. Everything that we have should align to Jesus. He is the movement by which we measure all angles, all status and things for our life. He is the movement in which we judge the way that the church moves and breathes and lives and exists because upon it, the entire church exists. It is not built upon us and what we do and how we handle culture and what we just preach or proclaim on our own. It's not how we build things for ourselves. We literally are built on this cornerstone that everything that we do should orient or move us towards or through Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. If Jesus is not the anchoring point of the church, then the church is not the church. It's just a group of people gathering together talking about religious things. Everything in the church should be anchored and oriented to Christ, period. He is the chief cornerstone. And that foundation is laid upon the Word of God, the apostles, the prophets. The church is not built on the word of one great preacher, or one good orator, or one charismatic leader, or one guy or girl that just seems to have a lot of authority within its concept, construct. That's a broken system that ultimately will fall. The church is made up of living stones. And those living stones are anchored to a foundation of the word of God that is tied to a cornerstone that makes it all work. So we have this temple, right? We have this household that leads us to this temple, right? These things that are anchored to the cornerstone in Christ. And then we see this in verse 22. And in him, right, this cornerstone, right, this living temple, You two are being built together to become the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's kind of an interesting verse because he's talking about these big, giant things in which we're connected to the prophets and the apostles and Jesus is the cornerstone and living stones and this temple and household and all these big things. And then he stops at the very end of this chapter and he says, and you two. Now remember, he's writing this as a letter to the church in Ephesus, this gathered group of ragtag people from every different walk of life imaginable, both Jew and Greek and circumcised and uncircumcised, all gathered here saying, and he's saying you are part of this great, big, amazing, incredible, huge thing called the household of God, called the temple of God, made up of living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone, the prophets and the apostles and all these things that you're a part of. And he says, and and you too, right here as you hear this, you too, are part of this living temple, or you two are a living temple. And I think what Paul's doing is something very important. I think he's basically establishing the idea of the church in the bigger context, right, that we are all part of this giant family household of God. That is true. Across space and time, we're connected with the believers and friends that we have in Hong Kong. We're connected with believers and friends that we have in Paris and Quetzalcoatl and wherever it is, right, that we're from. Or wherever believers gather, we're connected to them. And across space and time, we're connected with the household and family of God that went on before us. Our fathers or our mothers that died believing in the Lord or those that were a part of the Reformation. But he's saying something very specific to them. He says, you two, in other words, right here, you two in him are built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So he's saying, listen, right here in this community, This church in Ephesus, right here where you guys sit and read this letter, you are the church. You are the living community. Meaning that it's not just about the giant bigger thing, but the church, the little c, matters also. And that's where we get this concept, right? The big church, which we're all a part of the family household of God, big c, and the smaller communities that make it up. This church, this place, this thing, this community matters to God. And he's saying, in light of all these huge things, apostles and prophets and cornerstones, Treb, you too, right here, with wherever you guys are all from that gather here on Sunday morning, this church matters. You too are a living temple. So we gathered here as living stones, the assembly, the ecclesia of God, right here in this place, we are the living temple. We are the community, us too, right here. And not the building has nothing to do with the building. The building isn't made up of living stones. We could knock this thing down and move three blocks over, and we'd still be the church. In fact, we probably should sometime to remind ourselves of what the church is and isn't. It's not a location. You don't get to go to church and get to leave church. It's terrible theology. The church is not a building. The church is a living temple that moves, made up of living stones that is the very movement of God. Therefore, when we move here, we gather in life groups, all these things were part of the community of God. So here's what we see, right? We see this incredible picture of which we're all one household, this beautiful, incredible family of God in which we are no longer aliens and foreigners, but we are all fellow citizens, all with equal place. And that household is actually the dwelling place of God. It is made up of living stones that form a living temple where God's spirit dwells because he dwells in the believer and the believers gather together and God dwells among them in this holy, sacred, incredible place called the church. And the church is both big and small. It's big in the sense that we're connected to all these other believers through space and time, but it's small in the sense that it matters to me and you. And when we gather here, we're as much as the church here as the largest church in the world gathering somewhere else, we're all part of something bigger and smaller at the exact same time, and it is incredibly beautiful. So as I started thinking about this, I started thinking about, so okay, this is what the church in Ephesus is hearing, right? What does it mean to them? Like, what does it truly matter? What do we walk away with? Well, I think what would be the the most prominent thing that they would have heard first was this idea of family. I don't think I can stress the idea enough that This is a very difficult challenge to have asked, especially the Jews, to be a part of. For us, when we talk about the church being family, we, we mean that sort of in a metaphor, but none of us really mean it literally, right? Like, we have our family, our real family, and that's pretty much all I can handle. Like, I don't need another crazy Aunt Sally. Like, I've got one. She's all I got. I cannot handle another one. That's enough dealing with my siblings. I don't need that. But I do like the idea that we're family. I just don't really want to engage. So what I'll do is I'll keep the church as acquaintances. I'll call them family, but I'll never really let them know me. We live in a lot of that place. It takes us several years to get involved in any type of deeper group before we ever really show our heart. challenge is, is that that's not really what we're called to. We're called to this crazy thing in which we live in the complexity of family. And family's hard, right? Brothers fight, we struggle. Sisters fight, parents fight. You fight with your mom and dad. All these kind of things, it's hard. But it's also super beautiful. I mean, I have a brother, and we fight all the time. I think I've mentioned this. We fight all the time. We grew up fighting. We were two years apart. Literally everything we did was involved in some type of kerfuffle. Wrestle, fight, punch, blood, whatever. It didn't matter. It all was fair game. We still fight to this day. But I tell you what, if he called tomorrow and said, I need you, There is. I would crawl across broken glass to stand by his side. That's the way that this family should interact no matter where you're from, what you look like, where your skin color is, where ethnicity or what part of the world you come from or what your story is. Like You drop those things when you are at the table of God, at the banquet table. For them, it would have been a radical, radical, radical calling for the Jews to open up their heart and say, for 4,000 years, we've been called to stay separate. And now God has now opened the floodgates and I have to love you like I love the people that are like me. It's a big ask. But it's amazing. And we're part of that grafted in people group of aliens and foreigners that are no longer aliens and foreigners. And we're called to love like family. So the people that are hard to love in this community, you're called to love. And you're called to be known and to know people. So do what you can to get rid of all of the acquaintance And begin to let people know your heart. The church will change when we begin to exist in this way. So I think the first thing we walk away with is, let's live like family, right? The best that we can. I know it's not a perfect picture, and I know you're not going to open your heart to everybody. And I know it's not like, hey, we're going to divulge our three biggest sins. Whoever has the most wins. Like, whatever. Like, not that necessarily. But just try and be kind and be real. Fight for each other. Care for each other. Love each other well. Try and be family. The second thing I think that sort of jumps off the page to me, at least, is that, <clears throat> and this is probably not Paul's big intention here, of course, but it, it jumps off the page to me, and that is, we have a responsibility as individuals to keep our temple healthy. And I want to take a few moments to mention that I'm not really talking about the church temple per se, like don't, you don't have to clean the, floor. well, you do have to clean the floors and toilets, that's what we do, we don't have a custodian, so a lot of you clean our floors and toilets. But not really what I'm talking about, I'm talking about your, your individual temple. And and again, this isn't Paul's big kind of point here, but it is made here, and I would be remiss if I didn't say it. And that is that when you give your life to Christ, you become a living temple for the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Your life does. Your heart, your mind, your body. You now become the living temple of God. You are a living stone upon which this church and the big church is built. You matter, and your temple is super valuable in the construction of God's equation of humanity, if you will. We are required and called and should have the wherewithal to want to take care of it. Physically, take care of your temple, right? Emotionally, take care of your temple. Spiritually, take care of your temple. Do the things that it takes to make the dwelling place of God something that you love and are proud of. If you stand up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you say, I hate what I see, you are desecrating God's temple. He made you, and he makes no accidents. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't work harder to do things like stay healthy and make the decisions that you need to make, but it does, make, it does mean you don't get to desecrate it. You don't get to declare terrible what God has declared beautiful. But it does mean that you have some responsibility in its upkeep. Just get healthy physically if you need to. Get healthy spiritually. Pray, spend time in the Word. Declare that this is the year that you're going to read through Scripture. Read to the Bible. Know God more. Get involved in a life group. Nurture the temple that God has given you spiritually. Same thing emotionally. Clean your house of the garbage that's there. Take out the trash. Quit letting the Amazon boxes of negativity build up in your garage. If you come to my garage, it is full of Amazon garbage. Our minds and our hearts are the same way. We let that stuff build up and we think, I'll take it out Sunday when the trash comes or whatever. And then you look at it you're like, I don't know, man, I got to break all those boxes down because they don't fit in that stupid can. You know, I just let them stack here. And then you try and stack them all together and they never go in there, right? Because it takes work to tear them apart, to cut them down, to pull the flaps off, to get them all out of your house. Getting the negativity and anxiety and worry out of your temple is going to take hard work and time. You do not wake up one day and decide, you know what? I'm good. You have to do the work. You have to take captive every thought, as Paul talks about, and make it obedient to Christ. You have to declare what you're going to think and believe. You have to clear those boxes out. And the final piece of this, really, is we take care of this temple, right, this, this thing. We've got to spend the time in there spiritually and emotionally and physically. We have to understand how valuable the church is to Jesus. We have to love what Jesus loves. There's a real culture, and I shouldn't have to say this, but I do, there's a real cultural phenomenon going around in our sort of pseudo-religious circles that says, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. have probably heard it. It's kind of a, a great little statement that's being made over the past few years about basically declaring yourself a religious person that loves Jesus but just dislikes all the things that humans do. I hate the church, but I love Jesus. The problem with that is is that you can't actually love Jesus and hate the church. It's actually impossible. Why? Well, we just learned. Because Jesus is the dwelling place made up of all these incredible, or the dwelling place for Christ, and his spirit is the church, made up of all these living stones. You can't hate where Christ lives, dwells, and embodies. Now, I get the sentiment, right? Like, I love Jesus, but I hate all the things that people do. True. The church is made up of all kinds of terrible things. It's made up of herders, hurt people, brokenness, tears, sorrows, atrocities. It's also made up of love and care and community and beauty the reality is that's life and if you think somehow you're peering into the church and leveling all your judgment saying i don't like what they've done i dare you to sit down and let me peer into every corner of your heart the things that you've seen and the things that you've done when no one looks the ways that you think about things and people i would hate those things as much as you hate the things about the church why because we all have them You are not isolated. You are allowed to dislike the things the church has been a part of throughout history and not hate the church. You're allowed to dislike the way that sin has creeped into humanity and ruined so many things and still love the fact that God has chosen to demonstrate himself to the world through this crazy thing called the church. Broken, hurt, herders that are just redeemed and reconciled in Christ. And Jesus says, I will let them build upon me and I will embody them and I will use them to tell the world. You cannot hate where God dwells and tell me you love God. The reality is the Jews weren't going to be able to say, we're going to follow Jesus without the Gentiles. They didn't get that right. Likewise, you don't get to say, I love Jesus and I love the church. If you have a true love affair with Christ, you'll have a love affair with his church. You will see your own brokenness in it. You will see the brokenness all around it, and you will see the redemptive part. God redeemed you and he redeemed every single person a part of it. So we can stop leveling our judgment on the church. And I'm not just saying the big church, I'm talking about individual churches. We're actually really harmful in the way we level judgment on individual churches. the One's across the street, one's up the road, one down here, the things you say about all of them. You are leveling judgment on the body, the movement, the dwelling place of God himself. Why? You think it's perfect? It's not. It's not. You'll never find another single one. So here's the thing. This is what Paul's getting at. As a follower of Christ, you are part of a great household. And that great, great household has no more aliens or foreigners. We're all family in it. And as part of that family, right, we are actually dwelling places of God ourselves, And he builds us together, knits us together as a household into a living temple. And that living temple matters to God. It is the church, both big C and little c. And as the church, we have got to be driven to love and live like family, right? Like truly moved to that place where we love and we live like family. And to let the things that matter to Jesus matter to us. Keep this thing healthy and holy, starting with yourself. Part of what we do on this second Sunday of every month as we celebrate communion together is an expression of how we actually are knit together. This is probably the greatest gift that Christ has given the church because it basically reminds us all that this is how we're connected. We are not connected through all these other things and worship styles and buildings and stuff. We are connected through the body of Christ. Meaning that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, we are all through space and time going back to the singular event that drew us together and that calls us one, both big C and little c, living stones, making a holy temple. We are celebrating the death and the resurrection of Jesus, of which we are all united. So this morning, that's exactly what we do. We celebrate this table as the unifying place of the body of Christ, the single unifying place. That's why Paul says that it's open to all those who profess faith in Christ. We deeply believe it's not a denominational table. It's not a table that is just for those who are members of the Vine Community Church or who are Baptist or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or whatever your label may be. It is actually open to everyone who says, I trust and believe in Jesus. Why? Because we're part of the same household. And in the same household, we eat at the same table. Every single one of us has the same place. And this morning, we take communion as we do each week by means of intinction, which just means you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup and you eat. But on that very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the very night that everyone would abandon him, on the very night that he would go through a sham of a trial, he gathered with his disciples and after supper, he took a loaf of bread and he said, this bread is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming my death until I come again. This is the unifying peace of what it means to be a believer. It is the body of Christ broken and celebrated and given for us. The Apostle Paul tells us to take this process very seriously. He tells us to actually weigh our heart, to confess any sin or any inadequacies or shortcomings that we have, to not take it lightly, and to understand that what we are doing is partaking in this incredible family thing of which we are worshiping the risen Christ. Not one better than another. I'm going to pray and invite the elders to come forward as our servers this morning. And as you feel led, please stand up and Take a a communion at one of the stations we have in the back. If you need gluten-free communion, bread, Jesus, we got it. So just come down front. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for who you are in Christ. We thank you, God, that you are everything that we need. You are fully sustainable. You are fully God. You need nothing added or taken away from you, and yet you give us everything. We are wholly inadequate in you and apart from you. There is nothing we can do on our own. Lord, you are all that we need and all that we have to have. And so we ask that in this meal we're reminded of of these great and powerful things that come from the truth of being united together as one, one church, given one body. So Lord, as we celebrate communion, I pray that you would drive that home in our hearts that we are part of this great, big, beautiful body of Christ. We have been knit together and that we are one household. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. As Don our worship team lead us in worship, we encourage you to come down or go to the back. Uh, remain standing and we'll close our time in worship together. But let's share in this meal. opportunity to share this meal on a day that we're talking about households. Uh, No surprise that you order these things and work them out the way that you do. On the day that we talk about family and how family matters and how we're all one, we get to celebrate this incredible truth manifested in the idea of communion, that you have given us your body, that you have shed it so that we might be one. So, Lord, we're both reminded of the individual thing that transpires with this, that we have been saved by grace, that we are individuals alive, fully alive in Christ, that you dwell in us, and we're also reminded of the corporate peace, that with those living temples, we are now one big body, that we are a body of Christ together, both united through space and time and, and right here in this place, that we are the church, the household of God, the living community. So, Lord, we pray that as we celebrate these truths and we close our time in worship, that you would be exalted and that we would be reminded of who we are in Christ. Let's close our time this morning.
1: Ash to ash, dust to dust, we live and. Die but in the sun, in the sun, we are alive, all for one, all for one, every tongue and every tribe, in Jesus crucified, cause Jesus is alive.
0: make these scripture come alive and literally be real let's walk out with the things that we saw embodied in this place like let's walk out wanting to live and love like family to to safeguard and take care of the very temple that you are both mentally and physically and emotionally and to love what Jesus loves to dump that part of our mind that has issues with the church and fall in love with what God is doing love what Christ loves and where he dwells This is the church. For better or worse, it is God's tool to take the gospel to the world and you are a vital part. Go in peace.